I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Stacy, hey! Welcome to Portland. It is so good to see you. Oh, it's so great to see you too. Nice airport you have here. Thank you. I just had it decorated. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, you must be hungry after your flight. You know, I know this great breakfast place that we can go to. Oh, hey! Is that the airport bar? <gasps> Let's grab a shot instead. Stacy, it's 9 a.m. I, I thought that maybe we'd do a little sightseeing and maybe grab a coffee. Coffee? Or... Oh, God, I don't know. Um, do you have a lighter? I, I don't smoke. I, I didn't know you smoked. Oh, just a touch. Are you holding? Am I, am I holding what? Ah, you know, just kidding. <laughs> oh, holding. <laughs> That's funny, too. Yeah. Anyway, I thought mm. that we could take a walk on the waterfront. The cherry blossoms Ooh, in this that's town. that's by the river, right? Yeah. There are hobos down there, aren't there? Yeah, you know, I've never seen anybody with a bindle that I'm aware of. How many police are usually patrolling this time of day? Why? I don't know. Anne, have you ever wanted to get buzzed, roll a hobo, and chuck him into the river? I'm sorry. Did you did you Ooh, just say you wanted to throw a hobo like in the river? like this time of year? Do you know where we can get some cement? Stacy, I don't... Anne, you got to understand. I'm away from my kids for two days. I need to let off some steam. Okay, that just seems like a lot of steam. But remember, remember when I went to Vegas last month? Yeah, yeah, with your book club, right? Yeah, book club. You see, when I said book, I meant black tar heroin. And when I said club, I meant switchblade death squad. I'm not saying that a couple of cops went down or anything, but uh, I really can't cross the Nevada state line again, ever. So I thought Portland might be nice. Oh, oh my God. I just wanted to get a latte and watch the trees change. What happened to you? Oh, you, you gotta have two kids in diapers at the same time to know. I, I feel like a caged animal with a shrunken vocabulary and an embiggened desire to F stuff up. I'm sorry, embiggened? Oh, you know what I meant. <gasps> hey, I know you guys have assisted suicide here, but what are the laws on assisted homicide? Like, you know, maybe they're not sick. Maybe they're just a jerk. Um, I don't, ooh. I... Oh, how big is your trunk? And, and if I handed you a can of mace and a makeshift blowtorch, would you know what to do? All right, you know what? I can tell that you have a little energy to get out. Don't tell anyone, but I know a place we can go. Cool. Can I wear my leather chaps? Uh, okay, yes. It's, you know what? It's a dark little theater where some pretty freaky stuff happens. Some real unsavory characters run the show, and you never know if you're going to make it out alive. That sounds perfect. I think you'll love it. It's, it's... Live Wire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, some great guests for you tonight. They're all about journeys, very different kinds of journeys. Our first guest took a journey across the United States driving every kind of vehicle except a gas-powered car. Boaz Frankel from the Unroad Trip is here with us tonight. 
And yeah. And here to talk about life's final journey is the director of this year's Sundance Grand Jury Prize for Documentary Film, How to Die in Oregon's Peter Richardson is with us tonight. Very excited about that. And our musical guest tonight, it's the Afro-Klezmer jazz Latin rock sensations, Klezmocracy. But first, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath. Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, poet Scott Poole, author of The Cheap Seats, will sit in our audience and in the course of just a single hour, the amount of time it took for Walt Whitman to connect the body electric to an external power source, Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses what he's learned over the course of the show. So welcome, Scott, and get to writing. And of course, we can't do it without our band. Please welcome Ralph Henley and the Mutton Chops. (laughs) Thanks, Ralph and kids. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we'll be talking to uh, Peter Richardson, the director of How to Die in Oregon, later in the show. And the film is about Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. And it follows terminally ill patients as they make decisions about how and when to end their lives. And uh, he takes a lot of care in how he deals with the subject matter. And we really get to know the people who are struggling with these choices. And we're privileged to see some of the most significant moments in their lives and their deaths, frankly. Um, so you can understand, it is a, it's a difficult film to watch. I had the choice of watching the film on a DVD screener or going to a live screening where Peter was going to speak after the film, and I made the unfortunate choice of going to the live screening. Um, the choice wasn't unfortunate because the film was bad or that seeing Peter and some of the extraordinary people from the film speak that that experience was bad. Um, That was all fantastic. It was unfortunate because what I had made the decision to do was cry like a toddler whose whoopee just got thrown into the fire for two straight hours in public. (laughs) So that that wasn't that wasn't actually pretty. There's there, there's levels, I've discovered that there's levels of crying in movies, and maybe women are more familiar with this than men. Um, but level one is uh, where the tear falls down your face, and it's hopefully on the opposite side of your face from your date. And we usually, we just, we let those dry up as opposed to wiping them away, because we don't want to tip our hand, right, that anything's going on in our facial area. Everything's fine. <laughs> I am fine. I am a rock. I am an island, uh, but not an island surrounded by salt water because I am not crying right now. (laughs) How are you? I can't turn my head to check to see how you're doing for a reason I can't really explain, but I am fine. Thank you for asking. And then uh, there's level two, and that's where more than one tear falls, including one on your date side of your face. So if they look over, (laughs) you're screwed. Um, And this is where we wipe it away, right, with our hand, and we look over at our date and just kind of roll our eyes. Uh, Whatever, (laughs) it's not... Uh, Whatever, you know, I'm crying a little because that's what humans do, right? I mean, we're bipedal, we have opposable thumbs, we eat pancakes, and we cry, you know? (laughs) Big whoop. I'm human, so sue me. (laughs) Because humans are lawyers, too. We sue each other. It's another thing we do in addition to crying. It's not a big deal at all. We're fine. So that's kind of level two. Then there's level three, and that's where you can't turn the faucet off. The tears are just, they're coming one after another and you can't catch them all with your tongue before they go down to your chin and neck, which are now all wet and salty. And you start wondering if you should tell your date that you had someone in your family that this exact thing happened to, even though you didn't. Even though this could be happening because of that time that you didn't get to dance the lead in Cinderella when you were seven, even though you could do the pot de beret 50 times better than Lara Peters. Or... Maybe it's because you still miss your dad 15 years later and those slippers that guy's wearing look just like the ones he used to wear in the grocery store to embarrass you. Or maybe it's because the donut you got this morning had raspberry filling instead of cream. It could be anything, really. Maybe you wanted to cry 10 times this week and now you're in a dark theater and it's the only time that you're not going to seem weak or crazy. I actually think that it's a gift that great filmmakers give us 
uh, to allow us to spend two hours in, in the dark watching humans make us feel more human. So I thank Peter Richardson for that, and we'll be talking to him. But before we start tonight, we would like to welcome all of you listeners of radio station WKCO in Gambier, Ohio. They are a 100% student-run and student-staff station based out of Kenyon College, whose sports team nicknames are the Lords and Ladies. (laughs) Our first piece of advice to you... Calling yourselves the lords and ladies is not likely to strike fear into the hearts of your opponents. Uh, Please consider the following, the butchers and barmaids, the Argonauts and Amazons, or the Crips and Bloods would also work. Uh, Now that you're airing our show, we're available for advice anytime. So from us to you, welcome WKCO in Gambier, Ohio. So perhaps a not-so-little-known fact, our guest band tonight was the house band for Livewire during our first couple of years. They left the show to move on to bigger and better things, but they were nice enough to leave us with our house band leader, Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now Ralph pulls double duty in the Mutton Chops and Klezmocracy, who play extreme klezmer music that combines traditional European klezmer music with jazz, Latin, rock, and extremely well-coiffed facial hair. They just released their second CD, Reach. Please welcome Klezmocracy to Livewire.
Lesmocracy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ralph Huntley. It's Ralph, right? It is Ralph. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, that was fantastic. And my good friend, Joe Janiga, my co-founder and co-leader agent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hi, Joe. Hi, Courtney. Welcome back to the Livewire stage. Oh, thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah, it feels kind of good, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it yeah. feels great. Is there, is there something that you can, that you can say that, that will help define what klezmer music is, what differentiates it from other types of music? Yeah, and you won't get much insight into what we just played, probably. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of klezmer roots in what we do. Klezmer is Jewish music, you know, it's a Jewish tradition. Uh, a lot of it comes from Eastern European stuff. It's, uh, there's stuff from Spain, stuff from all over the world. It, it kind of gets to New York and goes through a melting pot process. Um, and then it comes to us, and we further, you know, melt it out. And we, we have our own take on it. Um, what we, just, we just basically use uh, all of our b- backgrounds and fuse it with this music and try to make art. Do you have a more a sort of improvisational writing process as a band? Um, or is it pretty set in terms you of... You know, we have a little bit of both. Yeah, I would say it's both. I mean, some of the stuff that we... On our first CD... Well, so our new CD is coming up, and we're doing a CD release here at What's the What's that new Rose. CD called, Joe? It's called Reach. Reach! Reach! Right. Reach is the new CD. And we'll for be here sale. At, yeah, we'll be here at Alberta Rose on June 11th, Saturday oh, night. Um, for anyone who's in the Portland area. And so that CD is available now, and they can get information about the band at oh, klezmocracy.com. Yeah. If you can figure out how to spell it, you can visit the website. Uh, we'll hear another one later. Thanks so much for joining us, Thank you guys. Thanks, Good to see you again, Joe Dan. Thank you, Joe. Plasmocracy, everybody. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread. And the bread of the week, 21 whole grains killer light. With only 65 calories per slice, it's made to inspire a 21-grain salute in your mouth. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Uh, Thank you, members of the press, for being here today. More details are emerging on the operation that killed Osama bin Laden, and I hope to clarify those now. First question. Uh, Yeah, it was reported that the SEAL team encountered heavy resistance upon entering the courtyard. Uh, Then reports said minimal resistance. Uh, Can you confirm what the SEALs, in fact, encountered? I can confirm that there was indeed a courtyard... Okay. Uh, Can you elaborate on the resistance, if any, they encountered in the courtyard? Um, Absolutely. They encountered a large number of, well, a herd, if you will, of enemy combatants. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you say herd? Uh, Yes. It was a fierce and bloodthirsty herd of things that attacked the SEAL team for a few minutes. So Uh, Things. Goats, okay? It was goats. Right. All right, there are pictures out there. It's going to come out anyway, so there was a herd of goats. Okay, you happy? And that qualifies as fierce resistance. Well, one of the seals was injured. Injured? What, from a goat? Well, it was a pretty serious nip to the leg he sustained there. It required multiple Band-Aids. I'd call that serious. Next question. Okay, um, it's recently come out that they found a stash of pornography. Can you describe it? Oh, no, that would be disgusting. Absolutely not. Okay, can you at least give us some titles? Uh, fine. Let's see here. Uh, it was mostly magazines, barely legal feet, uh, shrouded in pleasure, modern ankler, forbidden shoulder, and Harper's Bazaar. Uh, <laughs> next question. Sharon. Uh, Yeah, it's been reported that he died using his wife as a human shield. But it's also been reported that his wife simply rushed the shooter and she was shot in the leg. Okay, I can confirm it sustained many wounds, including a wound to the leg while being used as a human shield, yes. It? Beg your pardon? You said it. Are you saying his wife isn't human? (laughs) I'm not saying that at all. Let's just say he was using a shield in the shape of a woman that may or may not have been human. Excuse me, but how can something maybe be human? All right, you guys are relentless. It was a blow-up doll, all right? A bouncy Bathsheba blow-up. He was asleep in a bed and shielding himself with this blow-up Bathsheba thing. They shot a blow-up doll named Bathsheba. Yes, yeah, the blow-up doll was shot a whole lot of times. I mean, they tore this thing to bits. 
But the rules of engagement are clear. If the blow-up doll refuses to yield, the seals have the green light to fire. Wait, so Bin Laden was sleeping? Correct. Our intelligence shows that he had been asleep about um, five years at that point. (gasps) Wait, he was dead already? How are we supposed to know, okay? Look, it's not our fault he was already dead. It's Pakistan. No cable, no phones, no TV. The guy was probably bored out of his mind, okay? Next question. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us anything about what went on in the 40 minutes the SEAL team spent on the compound? Uh, they spent their time collecting intelligence. For 40 minutes? Well, they, they might have snuck in a quick break in there somewhere. Uh, what were they doing? Well, it appears there was a foosball table and a snow cone machine. <laughs> when you've just eaten some pizza, a good snow cone really washes it down nice. Uh, okay, uh, where did they get the pizza? Uh, pizza Hut. There's Pizza Huts in Pakistan? Well, not any... Well, that is to say there aren't any Pizza Huts there now. So they destroyed a Pizza Hut. All right, I will say that the current design of Pizza Hut locations bear a striking resemblance from the air to certain high-value terror compound targets. Okay. Uh, we saved as many pizzas as we could. None of the Pizzones made it, I'm afraid. Next question. Okay, so you're stating on the record that after attacking a pizza hut and encountering a herd of, quote, fierce goats, during which one of the seals sustained a nip, they rushed into a room and shot an already dead Osama bin Laden through a blow-up doll named Bathsheba, after which they ate pizza and snow cones. Is this correct? Ah, you guys are as bloodthirsty as those goats. Well, are you sure you killed bin Laden? Well. We, of, of course we're sure. How do you mean? If you're saying it was his brother, you are wrong because, well, that would be as crazy as saying we lost one of the helicopters because one of the goats tried to fly it, okay? And if you see that video, it's fake, okay? Oh, I, I didn't say it was his brother. Did you say that goats were flying the helicopters? I was... Uh, Mike, out album... Uh, okay, question. Uh, we're standing right here. We know you're faking this right now. Uh, hey, look behind you. It's Miami Vice's Don Johnson, everybody. Oh, where is that? Uh, okay, well, wait, wait. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we believe that variety is the spice of life, but we also enjoy paprika which has been used both as a spice and a mask to cover horrific hors d'oeuvre mistakes since 1963. (laughs) Coming up, alternative traveler and kazoo enthusiast Boaz Frankel, director Peter Richardson, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Here's some fast facts about our next guest. He is the owner of one of the largest collections of kazoos in the world. So many that he curates a kazoo museum in South Carolina. He holds the Guinness World Record for most high fives in an hour. We will ask him what kind of event warrants that brand of celebration. And last year, he rode across the U.S. in 10 weeks on anything but a gas-powered car. A paddle boat, a Segway, a camel, something called a couch bike. And now you can follow his progress on a series called The Unroad Trip on Halogen TV. Please welcome Boaz Frankel to Livewire.
welcome to Livewire, Boaz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm yeah. pumped to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. I, I pulled up my camel out front. I hope that's okay. <laughs> Actually, I heard you walked here from southwest Portland. That is true. The thing is, you know when you go to these things, people are going to ask, how did you get here? So I can't uh-huh. say I took a car. So I did, I did walk about 10.4 miles with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> You are walking the walk. You're walking the sustainability walk, yeah. definitely. Um, I did. I, I wanted to ask briefly before we talk about the unroad trip. What what sort of experience had you had uh, prior to the high fives, uh, the Guinness World Record on high fives with high fiving that warranted that sort of celebration? Well, I'd always been a, a high five enthusiast, <laughs> and, and really, it started. That I got, I re got into the high five in college, and I started thinking if I could get a million high fives in a year. And I crunched some numbers with an accounting friend who realized it's possible, but it would have to be a full time job. Wow! And so the second best thing was, was there at least is there a record I could break? Uh huh. And that's that that led me to the the Guinness World Record, which actually just got broken. Oh no! So I'd no longer hold it. So was it? Did you have to high five all lots of different people? Yeah. Or, oh wow! So you, how many how many people did you high five? Uh, well, the previous record was 308, and then I shattered it. I think with 408 high fives, uh-huh. 100 more. We did. I did it here in Portland at Pioneer Square. That's fantastic. I love that you're a high five enthusiast. Yes. <laughs> he's an he's an enthusiasm enthusiast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. probably accurate. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, based on what you've done. You, uh, you did. You went across the country, uh, and it was t- a 10-week trip. Yeah, a 10-week trip. Um, covered over 12,000 miles through 32 states on 101 modes of transportation. What was it for you that made you take this trip? Well, growing up in Portland, I, I mean, I never owned a car. I'm, I do have a license, finally, but I'm a, a pretty poor driver. But I'd also taken some good road trips with friends, and I was thinking about, well, how can I get around the country and do the road trip, but without the car part? And then, meanwhile, online, you always, you know, see these crazy, like, slideshows of, like, look at these 10 crazy vehicles. This guy built a treadmill bike, and here's a pneumatic pogo stick. And so I, all these things were sort of floating around my head, and I was like, well, I wonder if I could get around the U.S. that way, using all these alternative means. Well, so, so what for you was the ideal mode of transportation when you took this trip, or, your, or a couple of your favorites? Well, couch bike was up there, because for me, I love riding bikes, and you know, after a few hours of pedaling, it's not my legs that are tired, it's my butt that's so sore. Mm-hmm. And so the couch bike really solved that problem, because you're sort of lounging, your upper body at least, you know, or on this nice pleather couch, and then your legs are pedaling, yeah, but it, it's, you know, but you're pretty comfortable still. Mm-hmm. So if you could design the perfect mode of transportation for you specifically, what would that look like? Oh, I know exactly what I want. I would want a fully enclosed, um, like, tricycle that has an electrical assist in that, so it sort of is is covered from the rain, um, and that you have some good sort of hauling potential. You could, you know, bring along puppies, lumber, kids, whatever, you know? Sure. Something like that, with maybe some cool, like, LED, like, flashing stuff, so you could, you know... Um, I don't know, make some pretty designs on the side or sell it off and advertise, you know, for, you know, live wire on my, on my, on Exactly. The, to pay my, for your trip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that the transportation infrastructure in this country is sort of based on needing to consume, right? Is there anything that you learned as you went across the country about how we might be able to change that, make it Well, there are a few things I learned. I think one thing is everybody's looking for the silver bullet. I think for a lot of people, they say, like, oh, electric cars, that's the future, which is great, yeah, if we weren't not using gas, but it's not going to solve traffic, and there are just more and more people every year. Um, and And I think the second people do start investing in alternative transportation, whether it's bike lanes or buses or light rail or streetcar, the rewards are huge and pretty clear. When you get to cities that had public transportation, you'd notice the, vibe, the downtowns were much more vibrant. And they were cleaner cities because people are walking around, so they have more civic pride, and they're picking stuff up, and they're planning you know, beautification projects. And you also interact with the city in a very different way when mm-hmm. you're walking around. You know, when you're in a car, you're basically getting around in a box. Yeah. You know, you're closed off from all this interaction and discovery, which could be happening. Yeah. Well, so you're done with the trip, but they're showing the show is, is going on now on Halogen TV, so people yeah. can watch it. That's right. Or they just have to check their local listings to be able to find it. Mm-hmm. For you, what's, what's your next idea? What's your next trip? 
There, there are a few things in the works right now. I, I'm just finishing up a documentary about the Salt Creek tiger beetle, which is one of the most sure, of in, endangered beetles uh, <laughs> in the country that only lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, and so I did that. And not only is it a documentary, but it's also a musical starring children. And so it's a little bit of a fusion project. <laughs> Uh, no, no, call MTV, because yeah. <laughs> that is, that is a... S- I'm just finishing, finishing that. I got to talk to the other filmmaker here about getting that into Sundance. Uh-huh. He did pretty well this year. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm, I'm st- in the early stages of planning a project that has to do with narwhals also, you know, the tusks. Sure. The, the whales with the big horns. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking with some bike builders about building some dream vehicles as well and maybe um, building a TV production into a, into a bike. Well, that's wonderful. And the trip sounds fantastic. People can watch the show. Uh, they can also watch some of the episodes online. The show yeah. is called The Unroad Trip uh, with Boaz Frankel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was Boaz Frankel, and you can find his new show, The Unroad Trip, on Halogen TV. And you just heard him on Livewire Radio. If you're in the Portland area, come to our next live taping, June 3rd, at the Alberta Rose Theater, with Daily Show co-creator Liz Winstead, authors David Shields and Eric Larson, and musical guests Alila Diane and Ramona Falls. More information at our website at livewireradio.org. It's the most powerful name in news names. Blasting you to the back of the chair with so much news, you'll get news whiplash. It's The Factor with your host, Bill O'Reilly. Welcome back to The Factor. We're doing it live! (laughs) Our next guest has been called the Man of Steel, the Man of Tomorrow, and until recently, an American man. That all changed in Action Comics number 900, where he renounced his U.S. citizenship. To quote the man himself, I'm tired of having my actions construed as instruments of U.S. policy. Welcome, Superman, to the no-spin zone. Uh, thanks for having me on, Bill. I'm really Let's glad Let's get to- started. Uh, I was Don't just- interrupt. You used to stand for, and I'm quoting you here, truth, justice, and the American way. Now that you've given up on America, is it fair to say that truth and justice are on the way out, too? No, Bill. That's vastly simplifying what I was Let trying- me finish. Since you've abandoned the old red, white, and blue, are you going to adopt the colors of another country, France maybe, or Russia? Bill, the national colors of France and Russia are also red, white, and blue, so... France and Russia at the same time. You heard it from the horse's mouth. The colors of my costume are in fact red, white, and gold, which would be Romania, I reckon, so... Really? Why not make it the whole UN? Well, I do support the work of the UN. That's dumb, sir. You're dumb. You're entitled to your opinion, Bill, but I feel the record show that... There's a big red S on your shirt. That stands for socialism, right? Uh, no, it stands for Superman. So Superman stands for socialism. Disgusting. Look, I I don't know... Next question. Why do you throw all our nuclear bombs into space? Well, that was a movie, Bill. We'll let our listeners decide what was a movie and what wasn't. Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. It was in theaters where they play movies. But you do throw some nuclear bombs into space. Well, I mean, yeah, when they're about to go off in the middle of a city. I so you admit you're a beatnik, free-love hippie who's soft on defense. Soft on defense? Yes, you. Last week I defended Metropolis from a giant ape. I was not soft on Excuse that Excuse me, you're interrupting. It says here you claim your home planet, Krypton, was destroyed. Destroyed by global warming. What? Are you going to let me finish? My question is, how much did your pal Al Gore pay you to come up with that? Bill, Krypton exploded. I suppose that would have warmed some part of the globe, briefly, in a way of speaking, but Al Gore had nothing to do with that. Exploded? Come on, Superman. Aren't you laying it on a little thick? The whole world will explode if I don't buy a Prius. Excuse me? It says here that that's what you said. That's not even what Al Gore said. And he's really into those pre... pre Prius... Next question. How long have you been living illegally in this country? I I was adopted by this country. I grew up in Kansas. So you can provide a birth certificate. No, they didn't have an immigration office in the field where I crashed my spaceship from another planet. 
when I was a baby. I think you just defined the term illegal alien terror baby, sir. That is not even a real term. Moving on. Folks are saying all your giant ape successes can be attributed to steroids and stem cell research. How do you respond? Bill, I have super hearing. I can hear what everyone is saying at all times, and literally no one has ever said that. I did, just now. Wrong again, Superman. Bill, listen. Let's take I... some calls. Bruce from Gotham City. You're in the no-spin zone. Thanks, Bill. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks, Bruce. Do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Shouldn't these so-called victims start paying for their own inability to help themselves? Killing giant apes for free sounds a lot like socialism, if you ask me. Bruce, uh... He's interrupting me, Bill. You're interrupting, Superman. Bruce, you're using your Batman voice. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, that's not. You are. I am. Yeah, that's the Batman voice. Okay, look, I've got to, uh... I've got to go now, but uh, Bruce Wayne is not Batman. Well, I'd like to see him strike fear into a giant ape. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks to my guest, a man. Super, we'll let the viewers decide. Next up on the Factor Zone, entrepreneur and patriot Lex Luthor on why giant ape attacks are good for job growth. <laughs> Our next guest is a documentary film director who won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival this year. His movie is How to Die in Oregon, and it's about the 1994 Death with Dignity Act that allowed terminally ill patients with six months to live to end their own lives for the first time in the United States. It was challenged in 2006 by the Bush administration, but upheld six to three. The film follows advocates, activists, and patients who are making the hardest decisions of their lives. It is eye-opening, it's heartbreaking, and it is incredibly personal. And if you don't walk out of the theater changed, you might be a robot. Please welcome the director of How to Die in Oregon, Peter Richardson, to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, Peter. Thanks for having me. So I've heard the story about how you saw the headline about, about how this Death with Dignity Act was upheld, and you knew that you had to make this film. You were 27 years old at the time. What made this issue so important to you? Yeah, I was actually, I was 26 when I saw the headline, and then 27 when I started making the film. And I think it was, you know, just really a combination of factors. Like, I think I saw um, in that headline, like, the makings of a, an incredible story, and also a story that um, really needed to be told, um, and also a story that would be very difficult to tell. Um, you know, this would be a film that would be difficult to get financed, you know, for, for practical purposes, mm -hmm. and also one where you would need to spend a lot of time really filming with uh, people. And so here I was living in Oregon. I just finished my first documentary, and I think I, I really felt on it in a way almost like a calling or a duty in a way as a documentary filmmaker to, to tell this story. So you were attracted to the difficulty? <laughs> I guess, yeah, actually so. I think that, you know, in documentarians, there's a certain sense of, you know, masochism because it's a very, <laughs> in some ways, very, very difficult profession. You know, you're yeah. uh, working, you know, very, very long hours um, and you never know whether the work you're doing is necessarily going to see the light of day. Um, so I think that, you know, there is a sense of kind of, you know, you have a, a passion for, for a story and for a form and, you know, passion is in a way a kind of suffering. And, and so I think that's really, you know, something that all documentarians feel. Is it difficult to be making this film and not know what it's going to look like at the end? That's the most difficult part and that's something that um, with my first film I really struggled with. You know, first of all is, you know, what, what is this going to look like? How, you know, how do I tell this story? And then is anybody ever going to see this film? You know, this is my first film. I, I really didn't know if I should be doing documentary, if this is really, you know, the, the right place for me to be as a filmmaker. Um, and with this film, um, it was extremely difficult because these were, I was, I was following stories as they were unfolding. Right. And, you know, they were, of course, very, very unpredictable what was ultimately going to happen. There were literally some people, I was filming with people who had terminal diagnoses, and there were some people that I would film with, and then days later I would get a call saying that they had passed away way. Um, so that was, that was an incredibly challenging part, but also I think that, you know, ultimately if you stick with the project, you know, I filmed, uh, worked on this film for four years, um, you know, 
hopefully you find that one story or a few stories that um, you know, are really ultimately going to make an impact with the viewer. Well, you definitely did find that story. And we wanted to play a clip. Uh, it, this clip is Cody Curtis. She's a 53-year-old woman with liver cancer. And she had chosen to take advantage of the Death with Dignity Act. In this scene, in this clip that we're using, she's talking to a counselor from Compassion and Choices. It's a group that helps people navigate through the process. So let's play that clip. I've been feeling really good, and I've been feeling really guilty about it. I just feel like if you're handed a diagnosis like that, there are certain expectations about how you should behave and um, what's going to happen next. That's a hard thing to anticipate. It's a hard thing to live with, not you know, feeling like, well, when will I know? When will I know? And I feel like I want to conform to the expectations of someone with a terminal illness. But it's funny, I gave away all my jewelry... And then I bought some more. (laughs) That's so great. Because I thought maybe that was a bit premature. But I have had this checklist, and it's nearly done. And I'm sort of dragging my feet on the last few things because I think, well, if I have another several months, then what am I going to do? Yeah. I'm I'm ready to, to start to decline. And I'm not declining. What's the matter here? So she was, she was an amazing person. Um, were you surprised to hear someone talking about feeling like they weren't doing a good enough job of being a terminally ill patient? Yeah, it is, it is a strange thing. Um, you know, Cody went through this period where uh, she was given this terminal diagnosis. In, in Oregon, in order to get the medication, two doctors have to say that you have less than six months to live. So I met Cody in February of 2009, and at the time, she was planning on taking the medication on Memorial Day, May 25th. And she told me when I first met her that, you know, she said, Peter, I don't, I don't even think I'm going to make it that long, actually. And then um, she got really good palliative care and literally just kind of blew through this deadline that she had set for herself, outlived her prognosis. So she did go through this kind of limbo period of, you know, I feel like I should be dying, basically. And I have this medication that's literally sitting, you know, she kept the medication in her nightstand. So it's there every night as she goes to bed. It's, it's you know, this kind of this, this reality is confronting her and so she did go through this period where she felt like I should feel sicker or when will I know when when is it time to take this medication so it was a a strange kind of limbo well so many of the patients talked about how how much of a relief it was for them to have a sense of control over when and how they they died but in some ways especially especially with Cody it felt like that's a little bit of an illusion yeah, I think ultimately, you know, the medication did uh, offer Cody a lot of comfort and a, and a feeling of control, and that, that's true that a lot of people who do get the medication really say that's, like, kind of the number one reason they want it. It's not that they necessarily want to use it, um, but it's there kind of if, if they need it. I think for Cody, you know, one of the challenges was was that period, and, and also, you know, really making her family feel comfortable ultimately with this, this decision. You know, she had two children, one 25, one 29. Um, they had been through um, uh, this cancer battle with her. You know, she had pursued a curative therapies, um, had her liver resected, and then ultimately the cancer came back. So I think that, you know, Cody was someone who cared very, very much about all of the people around her and really wanted them to feel okay with this decision. Well, and, and another thing that people just kept saying throughout the film was, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden. And in some countries, it's really part of the culture that you just know that that's what happens. Um, right. And in this country, it just it feels like we we feel a little bit differently about it. Although su- although Switzerland, I know, has had a law in in for decades about death with dignity. Yeah, there are a few other countries that have um, laws like Oregon. You know, Oregon was an incredible, really a real pioneer in this. We were only the the second place in the world to formally legalize this practice. So Switzerland was the other country. The Netherlands, of course, is you know maybe the one of the more famous countries for having this for some time, but they didn't actually formally legalize it until 2002. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of why people use this law, it's, it's a lot of different reasons. There are a lot of different factors that go into that. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a black and white issue. It's, it's sure. a very complex issue. And it's a very, very human issue. And I think the film, you know, I hope kind of explores some of that. Oh, absolutely. It does. Um, it's interesting. I, in doing research, I actually I found a quote. Uh, it just feels like we've been talking about this forever. And I found a Sophocles quote from 5th century B.C., Death is not the greatest of evils. It is worse to want to die and not to be able to. 
it feels like now that we have the power to change that, I'm, I'm just wondering why we're still debating it, why we're still debating whether or not we should use it. Why do you think people are, don't well, want to have this? It's still a, you know, an incredibly controversial issue, of course. And um, you know, Washington State has now passed a law similar to Oregon's. Uh, Vermont was actually considering one in the state legislature, and I, they got pretty close to passing it, but didn't ultimately pass it. Um, but it's still incredibly controversial. You know, we're here in Oregon. We kind of accept this law now as 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 being just a part of the culture here and, and a part of the dying process in a way for some people. Um, but it's still very, very controversial, and um, I think it's still a pretty radical notion for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you you watched people making these decisions. You were in the room with them for clearly the most significant moments in their lives. What was that experience like for you? Um, the experience of, of being there in these moments was, you know, incredibly difficult. I was also um, doing all the filming. I was the, the camera person on the film. So um, it was really, really challenging because these were the most intimate moments. And, um, you know, I knew that the film would only be as good as the kind of degree to intimacy of intimacy and access that I could get. Um, unfortunately, you know, the people that I was filming with were just tremendously courageous in letting me in. But it was it was not easy. But I but I felt so called to kind of tell this story um, that you kind of get through that, you know, real like just basic human awkwardness of being in a very intimate situation with a camera. Um, mm-hmm. and, and every fiber in your being kind of is saying, put the camera down because of the situation. But you know you're there to tell this person's story and they want you there to tell it. What for you is the best thing that this film can do for a person who watches it? Well, um, I've had a lot of different reactions to the film, and I think that the, the best, my hope for the film is that it is a catalyst for a larger conversation about death and dying, not about just this one issue. Um, within families, within you know, communities, within our society, um, it's a conversation we really need to have in this country right now. It's really important. But just on a personal level, I've had you know, the most amazing reactions, people coming out of the film saying, I've, you know, tweeting that I've, I've just called all my family members to tell them that I love them. Um, you know, just, it's kind of a wake-up call, I think, for people uh, in their own lives. I had another person say, um, you know, I just lost my... She was kind of younger in her uh, late 20s. She said, I just lost my mom to cancer a year ago. And she said, you know, your film uh, represented all the conversations that we couldn't have. And, and seeing Cody up on screen, that, that for me was like the conversations I wanted to have with my mother but was never able to have. So I think if the film can do that, um, I would be just incredibly... Uh, happy as a filmmaker. Well, it's done some amazing work already. Um, and it's such a beautiful film. I highly recommend it to anyone who knows someone who may die someday and may die themselves someday. <laughs> Which um, is all of us. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful film. The film is How to Die in Oregon. The director is Peter Richardson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Oregon premieres on HBO May 26th around the country and world. That was Peter Richardson, and you're listening to Livewire Radio, the variety show that's so freaking flexible you can listen to us any way you like. Live, on the radio, on the internet, on your iPod, in a car, in a bar, in your house, in a blouse, at the gym, taking a swim, staring intently at your phantom limb. Okay, maybe not the last one. Only if you're feeling it. The phantom limb, that is. But subscribing to our podcast is easy. More information is available on our website at livewireradio.org.
Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Klezmocracy.
Lesmocracy. And now, as promised, the man who has been toiling away for this entire hour, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that SEAL Team 6 might have had a poet on board. The signs are there. Just too much crap went wrong. It was such a big team. I think just way too many people were involved. Did you see how many people were in the situation room? The short woman in the back? Yeah, I think she was the one who brought in the donuts. I think it's like when a friend of yours starts a band and finally gets someone to let them play at some poor, unknowing dive bar, and all of a sudden, everyone that knows them wants to be on the stage and play the kazoo and give high fives and do their special blend of dancing behind the 14th backup singer. I can just see some SEAL Team 6 members' brothers saying, Can you get me in on the Bin Laden mission? Come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, please! I know you're going on the Bin Laden mission soon. Well, I think so. What kind of elite military training do you have, Boaz? (laughs) I'm an extreme poet. I can write a really good 14-line sonnet under intense pressure while riding a couch bike, pulling a beer cooler in the shape of a lovable sheep while I play the kazoo and give high fives to everyone who passes by while I eat 21-grade Dave's Killer Bread with butter I churned from the tears of narwhals. All right, poet, you're in. I think the helicopter went down because the poet started level three crying when they got too close to the compound and couldn't handle the pressure and started belting out random poetry. Oh, sweet muse, please assist me in this suicide mission. Oh, death, as you nuzzle up to me in your black snuggly. Take my jewelry. No, it's too soon. Take my jewelry. No, it's too soon. Okay, just take my metaphoric jewelry. Red team leader, turn right. Wait, the poet was whining. Which way? Left, right? Correct, or left? Ah, the wall, the wall. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Boaz Frankel, Peter Richardson, and Klezmocracy. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Haumeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Haumeister, Sean McGrath, and house poet Scott Poole, performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and siren of sound Pachinowski. Our guest writers this week were Jason Rouse and Ben Coleman. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Stage management by Drew Flint. Theme song by Courtney Montrelli and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes, saying, The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of this public radio station. For instance, when somebody said public radio is just for nerds. That's a good example. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read 
on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 